All right, take your Bibles, let's open God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I, this may be a, a, a two-week series. I may get to everything tonight. If, if not, that's fine. We'll pick it up next week. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, I want to look at the first part of this book and talk to you tonight about the church that God sees. And we could say it this way, the Christian that God sees. I want to begin this study tonight by asking you a personal question. I, I certainly do not want you to answer it out loud, but I do want you to seriously consider it. And the question I'd like to ask you is this, what does God see when he looks at you? I mean, if you'd take that seriously for a moment, what does God see when he looks at, at you, when he looks at your life? Uh, for some of us, maybe for all of us, it's kind of a scary thought to think that the maker of the universe, the redeemer of our souls, would look behind the curtain of our life, look beyond the superficiality, look beyond the labels, and really look at us. And when he does that, when the redeemer of our souls looks at us, what does he see? The Bible's answer to that question might surprise you. In fact, I'm going to say to you ahead of time that as we get into this study tonight, you may start questioning my theology. So I'm going to give you that warning ahead of time. The only thing I would say in response to that is simply this, stay for the whole study before you determine that I'm off base. Listen to the whole study before you determine that I've missed it. Let me give you an illustration. I, I remember going to county fairs and they'd have these mirrors. And if you stand in front of one mirror, it makes you look really, really wide. If you stand in front of another mirror, it makes you look really skinny or, or it makes you look just uh, silly in some other form or fashion. Those mirrors are a lot of fun, especially if you have kids with you. Because they like to stand in front of it, and they like to see what daddy looks like in front of the mirror, or what mom looks like in front of the mirror. And they get a big kick out of seeing how funny you look at those mirrors. But those mirrors distort reality, don't they? They, they don't show you as you really are. They show a distorted picture of you, and that's what makes them so funny. I, I believe that in some ways we could say Satan has some of those mirrors, he convinces you that you look a certain way, but it's a distortion of reality. He reminds you that, that you look like a failure, but it may be a distortion of reality. He reminds you of your faults and of your sins, but it could be a distortion of reality. He reminds you of the things that you're in bondage to and the things that you're ashamed of, and then he declares that you're a failure that is unfit for the kingdom of God. In fact, he might say to you that you're such a failure that you probably are not even saved. But what if it's just a distortion of reality? Which brings me back to my original question. What does God see when he looks at your life? I'm not asking what your spouse sees when they look at your life or what a church member sees, or even what your pastor sees when, when he looks at your life. Uh, I'm not asking what, do, what does that lost person that you work with see when they look at your life. Those are valid questions and good questions, but the question that we, we want to wrestle with is what does God see? You know, some mirrors distort our image, but there are some mirrors that really show us who we really are. 
Today I want to look into the clear mirror of God's word. And I want to get an accurate picture of who we really are. An accurate description of who we really are. And here's what I want to challenge you with. Listen, listen, listen. What he sees in your life. Not necessarily what you see. I'll say that again. What he sees in your life. Not necessarily what you see. Haven't already opened your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The first nine verses hold the key to understanding not just this first chapter, but the first nine verses hold the key to understanding the entire book of 1 Corinthians. So if you want to master the book of 1 Corinthians, you have to master the first nine verses. And before we read those verses, let me give you the context of those verses and of this book. This letter was written to a church that was located in the city of Corinth which was a major cosmopolitan city in that day. It was kind of the New York City of its day. Corinth had a seaport that made it one of the major trading centers of its day. Again, kind of like a New York City. Corinth, much like New York City or Las Vegas, was a polluted city filled with every kind of vice, every kind of perversion, every kind of worldly pleasure that you can imagine. Uh, folks, sometimes we look at the cities in the world in which we live and we think, you know, this is awful and horrible and perverted and the world has gotten so bad. But what I want you to understand is those kind of cities re- were in existence in the Bible days too. Those cities in the Bible days were full of perversion and worldly pleasure and Carth was one of those places. Carth was one of those places that were... Con- that would be considered kind of the cesspool of the world. In fact, one of the lowest accusations that could be made against a person in that day was to call them a Corinthian. If you really wanted to cuss somebody, you called them a Corinthian. If you really wanted to, uh, you know, make somebody mad, you called them a Corinthian. Now, you know where Paul went to start a church? One of the places Paul went on a missionary journey, his second missionary journey, was to Corinth. He went to the middle of the cesspool. Around AD 50, Acts 18, if you want to write any notes down, Acts 18 talks about how he went there and he preached and he pastored in that vile, perverted city for 18 months. Now, about five years later, Paul received word that the church in Corinth was in serious trouble. The church had had a great beginning. The church was growing when Paul was there for those 18 months, the church had a a tremendous testimony for those 18 months. But about five years later, Paul got word that this church in Corinth, this church in the cesspool, if you will, of society, was in trouble, was in deep trouble. The members of the church had permitted the sins of the city to get into the local church. The the sins of the city had seeped seeped into the fellowship, the The sins of society had seeped into the church fellowship. No other church mentioned in the New Testament was quite so full of evil and carnality and division and spiritual pride. No other church in the New Testament was given to works of the flesh like this church. In fact, I don't want you to take my word for it. I just want to walk through some of these verses, help you to see that this is indeed a church that was in trouble. Look in chapter 1, for example, verse 11 and 12. Chapter 1. Verse 11. 
My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas. And still another, I follow Christ. This was a divided church. Paul said, there are quarrels. And this is not the only place where he talks about that, but just one example where he says there's quarrels, there's divisions in the church. I don't know if you've ever been, thank the Lord, there's no division that I know of here. But when you're in a church that is a divided church, it is a hellish place to be, isn't it? Corinth was that kind of a place. There were divisions in the church. People were taking sides. Look in chapter 3. Chapter 3, uh, look at uh, verses 1 through 3. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual. Now, the, he calls them brothers. These are fellow Christians. It's not that they've, they've not been saved. Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as, world, but as worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You were still what, church? You're still what? You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere men? Paul said, I don't tell you something. When I look at you, here's what I see. I see a worldly church. I see you fussing and fighting and, and you're so f- focused on, on yourself and your desires and, and you're just a worldly quarreling bunch of people. Now, that's not all. Look in chapter 4, verse 18. Chapter 4, verse 18. Some of you, some of you in the church have become arrogant as if I were not coming to you. Some of you have become arrogant. There was, and we could talk some more about that. There's some other verses. But there was pride in the church. Pride had taken root in the church. And some in the church were challenging Paul. Some were challenging his apostleship, his leadership. Pride and arrogance had taken root in this church, this worldly, fleshly congregation. They suffered from pride and arrogance. But that's not all. Chapter 5, it gets even worse. Verse 1. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And notice this, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife. And you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief? Have put out of fellowship the man who did this? Paul said, listen, you guys are a bunch of perverts. The, The things that you're doing... That there's somebody in your church fellowship who has his father's wife. And you're proud about this. And you're joking about this. And you're egging one another on. Paul says, you ought to put him out of the fellowship. But no, you've welcomed him into the fellowship. This sexual immorality in the society had seeped its way into the seats of the church. Not all. <laughs> chapter six, I'm telling you, this is a messed up church. Chapter 6. Verse 5. I, I say this to, to shame you. Is it possible? Let, let, I'm sorry, let's go to verse, uh, verse 4. Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, 
Appoint us judges, even men of little account in the church. I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? They're fussing and fighting. You know what then they were doing? Verse 6. But instead, one brother goes to law against another, and this is in front of unbelievers. Paul says, listen. You guys are fussing and fighting, and then you start taking each other to court. You start suing one another, and you're out there suing one another. One brother suing another brother, and in front of unbelievers. I wouldn't want to be a member of this church, would you? Then if we kept going, we... In chapter 7 through chapter 16, he answers questions and discusses various disagreements that they were having. And there's just all kinds of turmoil, all kinds of garbage in this congregation. A good two-word summary of this church would be this. You could call this church carnal Corinth. Carnal Corinth. You know what the word carnal means, by the way? Anybody know what the word carnal means? I thought I heard it. It means fleshly. Fleshly. They were living out of the flesh. They were living according to the flesh. It, it, it was a church at Corinth that was a defiled church. It was a divided church. It was a disgraced church. And so the question that I would ask you tonight is this. What did God see when he looked at that church? We would assume that God saw all of these things that we just mentioned. And indeed, God did, on one level, see that. No question about it. But here's how, how shocking it is. If, if Knowing the context now, I want you to go to chapter 1 and see how this letter begins. Paul, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes. And here's how he describes him. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be holy, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. When I read that, it's like, is he talking about the same group of people? Are we talking about the same group of people? What in the world is going on? And that's not all. Look what he says in verse 3 through 9. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Not from God the Father, from God our Father. And he says this, verse 4. I always thank God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. For in him you have been enriched in every way in all your speaking and in all your knowledge, because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you. Therefore, in other words, what he means in verse 6 is this. I know that you were saved because I saw God change your life. Verse 7. Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will keep you strong to the end so that you will be, you'll be what, church? Blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Christ Jesus, is faithful. <clears throat> if I were to take the first nine verses and somehow cut them out of the Bible and say, hey, read this, does that sound like Paul writing to a church? You say, yeah, it sounds like a good church. 
And then if I were to take and cut out portions of uh, 1 Corinthians and put it all together, kind of cut and paste, put it all together, and say, hey, read this. Does that sound like a good church? You'd say, no. <laughs> that sounds like a bunch of heathen. That sounds like people who need to get saved. And yet Paul is talking about the same group of people in both instances. So when I studied this, I had to ask the question, how could Paul with integrity write what he wrote in the first part of that chapter when he knew what was going on in that church? How, how could Paul be an honest man, an honest pastor, and say such things in the first half of the letter about carnal Corinth? Or maybe an even better question would be this one. Why would the Holy Spirit of God inspire Paul to write something like this? When of all people, the Holy Spirit of God would know how they were living. Now I want to make sure I say this clearly because I don't want you to misunderstand me at all. I believe that the Bible is the infallible, inerrant, inspired Word of God. I do. I hope you do too. But... Here's what I want to be honest to you, with you about. Verses 1 through 9 simply don't match the rest of the book. Now stay with me through all of this, alright? Make sure you stay with me. Verses 1 through 9 do not match what I see in the rest of the book. In, in verses 1 through 9, for example, Paul uses word like, words like holy, sanctified, blameless. You can underline, you can circle them in your Bible. He uses words to describe the people of God. Holy, you're sanctified, you're blameless. That's verses 1 through 9. Verses, verse 10 and through the rest of the book, he uses words like worldly, childish, immoral, or immorality. So how do we reconcile this? How do we put our minds around this? One commentator described it this way. He said, in verses 1 through 9, watch this, this is, this is going to get good. In verses 1 through 9, Paul describes the church that God sees. And verse 10 through the rest of the book, he describes the church that men see. I want you to let that sink in. Verses 1 through 9, as he begins the letter, he, he begins the letter describing the church that God sees. What does God see when he looks at that vile, perverted, disgusting, divided church. It might surprise you what God sees. What does God see when He looks at your life? It might surprise you. Hmm. Let me explain it to you this way. In verses 1 through 9, Paul describes our position in Jesus Christ. And in the rest of the book, he describes what they practiced in daily life. For most of us, if not all of us, there's a great difference between our position in Christ and our practice in Christ. <clears throat> you know what God sees when He looks at you? If you're a Christian... Again, you've got to stay with me through the whole study, and you're going to have to come back next Sunday night to, get, to really get the context of this. But can I tell you what God sees when He looks at you? God sees you as righteous. Because God looks at you through the blood of His Son. 
And that's our position. When we stand before God, we do not stand before God in all of our sin and all of our worldliness and our carnality and all of when God looks at my life. Yes, He knows about that. I'm not trying to downplay that at all. He knows about that. But here's what God looks at. God sees you as righteous. What we are in Jesus Christ positionally ought to be what we are, what we do practically, though, shouldn't it? I mean, we, we don't want to justify our sin. We don't want to say, well, boy, I got the good deal. I mean, I can go live like the devil and God sees me as righteous. No, 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 no. No, do not go down that road. Because what you are positionally ought to be lived out, practically speaking, in your daily life. But can we be honest? We often fail at that, don't we? Now, I think I've used this, this old joke a, a long time ago, but I'm going to use it again because it fits here. There's a preacher who quit his church after 25 years in ministry. I, I, I've been in ministry 30 years, almost 31. There's a preacher who quit his church after 25 years in ministry, and he went to work as a mortician. Somebody asked him why he did... we got a mortician here tonight. Somebody asked him why he went to work as a mortician. You, you've been a preacher. Why, why would you go work as a mortician? And the frustrated preacher said, because for once in my life, I want to be able to straighten somebody out, and they stay that way. If you have ever struggled to live the life that you ought to live, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Let me explain it to you this way. Christians do not always act like Christians. But their position in Christ and their practice in daily life are two separate things. Now, here's what we're going to do. I hope I've just whetted your appetite. And we're going to come back next Sunday night, and we're going to dig into this issue. Just kind of introduced it to you. I, I don't want you to leave here thinking, boy, Keith is messed up. I don't want you to think, oh, Keith is a heretic now. Here's what I do want you to do. I want you to get in the Word and say, God, how do you see me? When you look at my life, what do you see? And what might surprise you is that what he sees and what you see are often different. See, when I look at my life, you know what I focus on? I focus on my failures. I focus on my struggles. I focus on what, how I don't measure up. I focus on how I've messed up. I focus on those things that I've done in the past. When I look at my life, I look at how I, I'm not what I want to be. And more importantly, I'm not what he wants me to be. When I look at my life, that's what I see. But when God looks at my life, he's focused on something else. And because of the blood of his son shed for my sins, when God looks at my life, he doesn't see a loser. He sees one of his children. When God looks at my life, He doesn't see somebody who has blown it. He sees somebody for whom His Son died. When God looks at my life, He looks at things I don't look at. He has a perspective I don't have. Because God looks at my life and your life 
positionally and we look at our lives practically. And so many times those are two different things. And so, if I've confused you, I'm sorry. Please come back next week and I'll try to clarify. If I have worried you, I'm sorry. <laughs> come back next week and I will clarify. Your pastor has not lost it. He has not gone off the deep end. I'm going to tell you something. Listen, listen, listen. I'll just give you a snippet for next week. I'm just dying to get into it. I want to give you a snippet for next week. Here's what it is. The way God sees you ought to motivate you to live differently.